Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Freedom of Limits, which was taught for Lent in 2021. Our culture speaks a lot about freedom, but usually assumes freedom is escaping any limitations. However, true freedom is found not in rejecting limits, but embracing the limits God has placed on us as His created image bearers. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to open up in the Word to uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to take the time to read all of Genesis 3 to us today. We're really going to mainly be focusing on Genesis 3 as we are concluding Uh, Well, this part of our series next week will be the final conclusion, but as we're looking at the freedom of limits, and today we're going to be talking about freedom, limits, and the nature of sin. Freedom, limits, and the nature of sin. So, hear God's Word from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then Genesis 3. The Lord God took the man, and He put him in the garden of Eden to work it, And to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
And to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Two people who have deeply affected Western civilization both reflect on this story and tell their own life story in terms reminiscent. In uh, the 400s, A man named Augustine of Hippo, we know him usually as St. Augustine, wrote a book called The Confessions, considered one of the most important books in Western history. In fact, uh, in a poll they did in Christianity today, years ago, the top two ranked books were Mere Christianity and Confessions, and Confessions won. They did kind of like a March Madness, you know, bracketing off against one another. And Confessions won as the most important Christian book ever written. And in it, Augustine tells the story of his life. And at a key point in the story that Augustine reflected on in the Confessions, he's out one evening and some friends say, hey, let's go steal some pears from this guy's place. And Augustine goes down, it's a youthful prank, he steals the pears, but he begins to think, why did I do this? Why did I pluck the fruit that was forbidden and take it? And Augustine says, It's not because I was hungry, because I wasn't. It's not because these pears were particularly so good. To be honest, they weren't even that good of pears. I had far better pears growing in the garden back home. Yes, my friends were there and kind of talking to me, but I say no to my friends all the time. Why did I pluck the fruit? And Augustine says, for the same reason that Adam and Eve did, because Something in me rebelled and transgressed. There was no good reason for Adam and Eve to take the fruit. There was no good reason for me to take the pears. And I can't blame it on someone else. The root of my sin is within me. I am the problem. Now, some 1,200 years later or so, in the city of Geneva, a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau was becoming an influential thinker, and Rousseau wanted to meditate on the same thing, and so he wrote a book named The Confessions, clearly going back to what St. Augustine had done. And at a key point in the story, Rousseau is prompted to go steal some asparagus. 
Clearly, he's referencing back to what St. Augustine did. But when Rousseau looks back on his youthful time of stealing the asparagus, he says, you know, it's not that I wanted it or I needed it. It's because society forced me to do it. My companions are the ones who made me do this. Make no mistake, uh, Rousseau is saying, I have the same story as Augustine, but Augustine came to the exact wrong conclusion. Augustine believed he was the problem. I know I'm not the problem. Society is the problem. I am born what he came to refer to as tabula rasa. I'm a blank slate when I'm born. There's nothing wrong with me when I'm born. I'm perfectly good. Anything that goes wrong in me, it's the fault of society. Good is within, evil is without. Whereas Augustine had said, no, evil is within. And if I'm going to be saved, it's going to have to come from outside to me. Now, these two men are reflecting clearly uh, on the story in Genesis. And they're trying to wrestle with the question, of where is sin found? Is it found in me, or is it everybody else's fault? So today I want to take a look at the fall and freedom and limits and the depth and the nature of sin for us. Now, I began with Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, because I kind of want to do a review of what we've looked at the last five weeks. This whole series has been called The Freedom of Limits, and I want you to notice in verses 15 to 17, we see kind of a summary of what we're trying to state in this series. So notice first, in verse 15, we see that God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so God gave us a home, and God gave us work to do, both of which were fitted to our nature. They were good for us. He didn't do this with the other animals or anything else. God made us a certain way, and then he gives us a home that meets our needs, and he gives us a calling and labor that is suited to our nature. Then in verse 16, God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You got all these trees. You can eat as much as you want, whatever you want from any of those trees. God gives us great freedom that is suited to our nature. We are made to be free beings. However, in verse 17 we read, but you must not eat from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's in the, the middle of the garden because when you eat of it, you're going to die. Because God says your nature is not only suited to the garden and the work I've given you, it's not only created for freedom, it is also created to have inherent limits. And if you embrace the limits, you will flourish, you will find freedom, and you will live. And if you reject the limits, you will wither, you will become a slave, and you will die. All of that's there in our nature. This is all before the fall. This is the way we are created. And notice that God specifically warns of the danger. So, the reality that we have that we're dealing with in this series is the freedom of limits. We are created by God. We are given a specific nature. And our nature includes both the physical component. You remember in Genesis 2, 7, God takes the, the dirt and he breathes into it the breath of life. And 
in that we have both a physical and a metaphysical reality, the body and the soul, and freedom is found in embracing the way we're made, both body and soul. Embracing not only the freedom, but the limits that are there, body and soul. And that's how we flourish as we, as we do this. And I want you to notice that here in Genesis 1 and 2, we find that all of this is written into creation. It's the very fabric of creation. If you understand uh, weaving, it's the warp and the woof. It's both ways that the fabric runs. Everything around us says, this is your nature. Paul tells us in Romans 1 and 2, it's written into creation and it's written into our conscience. But secondly, God not only puts it in creation, he's verbally, specifically tells us this is the way it is, which Paul tells us God has not only written it into creation in our conscience, he's actually given us his word that tells us what our limits are. And so if humans will embrace the limits assigned by God, we will flourish. But if we reject these limits, it produces destruction and death. Now that's the background. And when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see the story of the temptation and the fall. Now, I'm going to take the rest of the time to go through this and kind of do what we've been doing each week. We're going to do a slow meditation on this. But I'm not covering everything that's there. There's so much in this. It's such a fountainhead of theology. There's a lot that you can look at just on the process of temptation. I'm not going to do that. If you look in the discussion guide we sent out in the email uh, this morning, or you can contact us, look on the website, there's a whole bunch of teachings where I've covered that in the past. Today, we're going to look at the nature of sin. How does sin work? The serpent here, which is Satan, Satan has already given in to sin. And so when he speaks, he's speaking in a sinful way. And then we're going to see how sin works, especially in human beings. So that's what we're going to dive into. The first thing that we understand about the nature of sin is sin doubts God's word and his motives. Notice in verse 4 and 5, I don't know if you noticed when I read through, Eve kind of gave a paraphrase. She gave a the message translation of what God had said. The serpent gives a very literal rendering of what God had said. Notice what he says. Remember, God had said, if you eat from this, you will surely die. The way they do that in Hebrew is dying, you will die. That's how you say you'll certainly die. The serpent comes back and says, no, not dying, you will die. No, God is wrong. The word you have is a wrong word. You will not die. And in fact, he goes on and tells us why. See, the reason God said that is he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. God is keeping you down. God is working against you. God is trying to, to restrict you in a way that's not good for you. Does this sound familiar from our culture today? Anytime you bring up anything that the Word of God says that people don't like, and they feel, that's exactly what No, see, that's, that is just trying to keep me from being who I am. That is not allowing me to express the reality of who I am, which is wrong. It's as wrong as what the serpent said. 
because that's not the reality of who we are. It's a distorted version of it. And so this we see right from the beginning. Sin rejects the limits given by God for our good, and it views them as evil, arbitrary limits that prove God's impure motives. See, God says, no, the limits are there because they're fitted for your nature. This is for your good. Sin says, no, they're not there for my good. In fact, it's you keeping me down. Okay? And you can look. I remember reading a book years ago by Isaac Asimov, and when he came to this portion of the story, he said the serpent was the hero. That's the view. Because the serpent is saying we should have the right to do these things. So that's the first thing. Secondly, sin distorts my perception of reality and deceives me. It not only doubts God's word and his motives, it distorts my perception of reality and deceives me. Notice in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she's looking at fruit that will plunge her and all of her descendants, including you and me, into disease, destruction, and death and says, I want some of that. That looks good. No, it doesn't. In any way, shape, or form, it doesn't look good. But it looks good to Eve because sin is working in her heart. That which was dangerous now looks desirable. And please make note of this. She's in a garden full of food. It's not like she's starving and sitting there and there's nothing else. But have you ever noticed that when sin starts working in your heart, you can't see anything else? All of a sudden, I I am fixated on this. I mean, we've all seen it. If you've raised children, you've seen this, right? I mean, you know, there's nine million toys, but four of them want the same toy, which is broken, by the way. Doesn't matter, because all I want is I want to, I, I want it. That's what sin does. It distorts our perception of reality. It deceives us. And so what sin does is it makes error seem like truth, ugliness look like beauty, And that which is actually evil seems good. When sin has worked, everything is flipped upside down. And we need to understand, we may see in our culture, and it happens in our own heart and life, it's not even that people know what they're saying is wrong. Their perception of reality has become completely flipped, distorted, because that's what sin does. And so when it distorts our perception of reality, it deceives us into embracing that which is our own harm. And it ends up killing us. Thirdly, sin displaces peace with guilt and shame. We didn't read the end of Genesis chapter 2, but here's how the chapter actually ends. It's not with the command where we were, but in Genesis 2.25 we read, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, some people read this wrongly and say, oh, so this is a story about why we wear clothes and why snakes don't have legs. That's not the point of the story, okay? There's a deep point here. See, Adam and Eve, it's not just that they're not wearing clothes. They are completely open to one another. 
They feel no shame regarding anything. They live in shalom. Peace, righteousness, goodness, everything is good. But notice when they pluck that fruit and they eat, the very next thing we read is, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. See, and the point is, again, it's not even just that they were naked, but now they're viewing their nakedness differently. It's not like God had put you know, glasses on and they thought they were clothed before. Now they feel differently regarding their nakedness. And so they pitifully tried to sew fig leaves together. See, they had been at peace with God and with one another, naked and unashamed. But now they know something is wrong, and they're trying to hide from one another. And then suddenly they hear God walking in the garden. God lets them know that he's coming. And please hear, at every stage along the way, God is trying to elicit out of them confession and repentance. But when they hear God coming, instead of running to him, what do they do? Right? And we've all seen this before. Again, if you're a parent with children and you walk in the room, how do you know they've been doing something they're not supposed to do? By the reaction, right? Things are getting down and they're kind of looking around and they're doing things. That's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing. I mean, and it's, you know, as a granddad, it's kind of funny when I catch them doing that because I'm like, you are so bad at this. Um, well, that's exactly what's going on with Adam and Eve. They jump into the bushes and they try to hide. But please hear, what's happening here is guilt. Now, here's a problem in our culture. We have collapsed guilt and shame all into one little ball and said it's bad. When you feel guilty, it's because somebody outside of you, because we're good children of Rousseau, the problem is outside, and it's trying to make me feel bad when there's really nothing there. But see, there is both objective guilt, when I have actually done something wrong, and then that can produce subjective feeling of guilt. Now, sometimes there are entire cultures that are shame cultures, and sometimes a family, a person, a church, an entire nation will make me feel shame over something that's actually not shameful. And that would be a problem. But what I always have to ask when I'm feeling guilt and shame is am I feeling guilt and shame over nothing? Or am I feeling guilt and shame because I'm actually guilty? And because what I did was actually shameful. Now hear me, in our culture right now, the answer to that question is always no. No, because like Rousseau said, see, the problem is not me. The problem is always someone else. Well, I can't feel guilt and shame. It can't be legitimate. That's foolish, friends. That's exactly what sin wants us to think and do. Sin prompts me to try and cover my guilt and shame, not through confession and repentance, but rather through rationalizations and my own works. I'm sowing fig leaves together. I'm hiding in the bush. I'm thinking I'm not going to be seen. It's not me. It's somebody else. That's what sin tries to do. And so today in our culture, we have an entire industry that blames guilt and shame on repressive culture. It's usually religion, but here's the fact. The more we dig into the hole, it gets worse and worse. People aren't relieved of guilt by doing this. The people who continue to dig into this, they get worse and worse and worse over because here's the problem. At the root of it all, we have objective guilt before God, and no amount of rationalization is going to get rid of that. 
we're standing there and we realize it, that there is real guilt and it has fruit, which is real shame. That is part of what sin does. We want the peace and the shalom, but you can't have it when you're standing there naked full of guilt. Fourth thing, sin desires to blame God and others for my behavior. It started by doubting God's word and his motives. It then uh, distorts our perception of reality. It displaces peace with guilt and shame. And then it desires to blame God and others for behavior. We we all know where it's coming, right? God comes in and he says, "Uh, who told you you were naked, Adam? Now, Again, this is not God is walking around and he's a bumbling fool and doesn't know what's going on. This is God attempting to get us to confess. And we hope at this moment, St. Augustine is sitting there saying, Adam, come clean. But Adam says, the woman, by the way, who you gave me, Remember, Lord, it was you and me, and everything was good. And then for some reason, you thought I needed her. We are a long way from bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's her fault, and ultimately, God, it is your fault. You put her here. You caused this. And look, there is a real degradation. When you go from blaming others, or as we see that Eve does, she at least blames Satan Adam blames God. Friend, when you have dug far enough into the hole that it's God's fault, boy, you want to talk about being deceived. But that's exactly what they do. So when Eve says, you remember, there used to be a comedian, if you're a little bit older, there was Flip Wilson, and he used to dress up as a woman named Geraldine, and her catchphrase was, the devil made me do it. Okay, the devil made me do it. But see, that that didn't start with Flip Wilson. That goes all the way back to the garden. It's somebody else's fault. I remember when I was a young man, I was like uh, 10 years old or so, my parents, my, my dad sent me out, I was supposed to mow the grass. And my dad told me before I left, son, make sure you go around and make sure there's nothing in the grass, especially make sure that the hose has been rolled up. So I did like all good 10-year-olds do, which went out, started the lawnmower up, and started rolling. A few minutes later, I hear this awful racket because when you run over a rubber hose with a lawnmower, it creates all kinds of problems. When my parents hear the racket, I go in, and my dad says, what happened? This is Genesis 3. And I, being a truthful young man and a good disciple of Rousseau, said, Some guy ran in and threw a hose in front of the lawnmower. My parents did not believe me, but it's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's 50 years later, that's still my story. I did what I was supposed to do. Some crazy man threw a hose in front of the lawnmower. Okay? I don't know why y'all are laughing. I'm telling the truth here. I'm bearing my soul. I'm going to hear about this when I call my parents this afternoon. Okay? Okay? But see, I was a disciple of Rousseau because that's what Rousseau says. It's not my fault I ran over the hose. It's something in society. Why was the hose there in the first place? Somehow the problem is someone other than me. See, Rousseau reads Genesis 3, and when Adam says it's the woman you gave me, he says, that's it, man, that's a good answer. 
And St. Augustine weeps. He says, oh, there's no freedom in that. You're binding yourself even worse. Augustine says, don't you understand? You're the problem. It's not your wife. It's not someone else. It is you. See, sin desires to blame anyone else. It refuses to acknowledge, confess, and repent and come to find forgiveness. And we see this all the time, not only in our relationship with God, but with one another. I mean, let's admit it. When you're caught red-handed and have done something wrong, how hard is it just to say, I was wrong, would you please forgive me? We struggle with that. It destroys marriages. It ruins relationships between parents and children for us to do that. Because see, what we've been taught as disciples of Rousseau whether you've ever heard of Rousseau before this morning or not, you've been discipled in the culture that he had such a deep influence. And here's what it says. My problem is outside of me, and my salvation is inside of me. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is, you're your problem. I am my problem. And if I'm going to be saved, it is not going to be by digging down inside of me. It's going to be looking outside of me. There's going to have to be an outside job done to come and rescue me. See, that's exactly what Adam and Eve are rejecting. And I want to say this particular manifestation is so rampant right now. We just saw a tragic example less than two weeks ago. Why did the young man kill eight people in Atlanta? Because I have an addiction, and, and they were a source of temptation, and so I had to take them out. No, you're the problem. They're not the problem. You're the problem. I hear all the time with families, we, we want to blame our spouse. My spouse is not my problem. I have an anger problem, but if my kids, your kids are not the problem. And I'm, I'm saying Anger was my issue. It was not my children's fault. And Tim says, amen. Yes, you are right. See, he, he thinks, yes, my daughter will definitely give me an amen. It's, it was not their fault. It was mine. And we need to own up and recognize it. But see, our, our culture wants to blame everything I feel on someone else. And We cannot do that. It's the foul fruit of Rousseau's confession, and it has to be utterly rejected. Someone else, when you're looking for why you got a problem, look at yourself, first and foremost. There may be that. It's not to say people don't do things wrong to us. They do, friends. It's a broken, messed up world. But we need to understand the root of things is inside me. They act out of sin because it's the nature of sin in them, and I react in sin because it's the nature of sin in me. Now, what this leads to, not surprisingly, is it disrupts relationships. Because if you're Eve sitting there, what is your response? Ladies, what's your response when Adam says, it's the woman that you gave me? It's not, oh, the man of my dreams. It's, we're going to talk about this later. You're sleeping outside the garden tonight. Okay? 
it's, it's destroyed. They're hiding from one another. Their relationship is ruptured. They're hiding from God. They're lying to God. And in fact, it produces conflict and death throughout creation. Notice in verses 16 to 19. See, Adam and Eve were going to have children. Eve was going to bring forth children. You're still going to fulfill the call that you were given. It's part of your nature. But now there's going to be pain and difficulty and problem in doing it. And notice there in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is not Ephesians 5, Christ in the church. This is curse. This is, there's going to be conflict in your home, and here's what's going to happen. It's a prophecy that has been fulfilled so foully. Rather than protecting you, loving you, and caring for you, the way Adam just threw you under the bus, get ready. This is what history is going to look like. He's going to throw you under the bus again and again and again, because this is what sin does. It's not freedom. It is death everywhere. Notice to Adam, hey, you were going to plow the earth and do it, and before, it willingly submitted to you. Now, there's going to be a struggle. And the picture is, if you could do an illustration or a cartoon, the longer Adam plows, the more he's sucked into the ground until it's less and less and less, and then the ground has completely eaten him up. That's where you're going, Adam. You thought this fruit was going to make you me. It's not. You're going to return to the dust. I'm eternal. You came from dirt. You're in my image because I breathe life into you, but you're dirt. That's what you were, and that's what you're going to return to. And so there's a point that we're all going to struggle against death and lose, and so the shalom of creation is now completely disrupted everywhere you look. And so you can see this everywhere right now. Look around. There are damaged friendships, broken marriages. There's class strife. There's racial strife. There's environmental degradation. And there is death. And make no mistake, it's because Augustine was right and Rousseau was wrong. And Rousseau was cheering at all the wrong points in this story. This is a tragedy. And it's what it's brought forth. See, what sin promises, freedom and fulfillment, if I'll just reject God's limiting commands and design. You just get that fruit and you'll be okay. But it always produces deadly results rather than life, freedom, and flourishing. So how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and me here in 2021? First question for us to think through. Again, we've been meditating for you know these whole six weeks on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Do I understand the true nature of sin? Now, in this series, what we've been looking at is our need for limits to bring freedom. Okay? Remember, you know, that in the, in the little logo that Stephanie had made, it was the freedom of limits, and limits is the key. Because if you want freedom, if you want flourishing, we have to embrace the limits that God has given us. But see, sin in its nature is transgressive. And look at our culture right now. The whole point of what people are doing half the time is just transgressing. It doesn't matter what the rule is, I just want to break the rule. 
because that's the nature of sin. I mean, when we're in the garden and everything is perfect, it was such a low bar. But we transgressed. And once we embrace that, it continues. And so the nature of sin impacts how we're going to experience our freedom and flourishing. And so what's happened is from the garden, we've minimized sin and we've externalized it. That's what we want to do. That's exactly what we've seen throughout Genesis 3. And from Rousseau forward, we put this in hyperdrive as a culture. Okay, if you, if you watch what we've been doing, our entire experiment from the Enlightenment forward, from around 1600 forward, is to, been, to come up with a way to deal with sin that is something other than something that is in me of which I need to confess and repent and cry out for forgiveness and cleansing. There's got to be some other way. But the effects of sin are deep, and they're profound. Now, I'm going to put up on the screen right now the things that I said today out of Genesis 3. I want you to just look at these and think about them. It doubts God's word and motives. It distorts my perception of reality and deceives me. It displaces the peace for which I was created with guilt and shame. It desires to blame God and others for my behavior and then it disrupts or destroys relationships. So make no mistake, sin touches, disrupts, and deforms everything. I, I happen to be one of the people who knows how good Bob Dylan's music is and love Bob Dylan. He's got a song that I always think about this idea when I hear it, because it's called Everything's Broken. And it's just about four minutes of him going through everything that doesn't work, clocks and watches and cars, everything that doesn't work, because he keeps saying, because everything's broken. That's exactly where we live. That's what it is east of Eden. Everything is broken. And see, what happens and why this is so important for us, if we take a low view of sin, and I think sin's just something external, or it's just something surface, or it's not really that big a deal. What it leads to is a sin management program. And I think I can get some therapy or some other kind of a thing, and just a little bit of an adjustment, and I will be okay when that's not the truth. This stuff is deadly. So John Owen, a Puritan writer, said this, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And that's the reality. That's where we live. That's the nature of sin. So the question for you and I in applying this is, is my view of sin shaped by our culture or by what God's revealed here in the Word? When I look at these things, is that what I really believe sin does? Because see, every one of us are going to be tempted today you're, you're going to find yourself in the garden. You're going to find yourself looking at pears. You're going to find yourself looking at some asparagus. And it's going to look good. And it's going to seem to be everything. Do I believe that? Do I believe it's small? Or do I realize that's me doubting God's very word and his motives? Do I realize that this is distorting my perception of reality? That thing that looks good right there is death. 
Do I realize that I've got peace right now? We all know this, right? Then you sin, and afterwards, it's like, why did I do that? This is a mess. But see, in the moment, sin convinces me. Does it make me want to blame God and others? And is it destroying relationship? Do, do I realize that that's what that thing is? Or do I have our culture's view? Every one of us are affected by our culture. If you're here and you say, the culture's view does not affect me at all, you are, you are steeped in it right now then. Because this is pressing on you and me 24-7. It's shaping us. It's working us. It, it's getting down to try and, and handle this. So with the tragedy in Atlanta, for example, one of the things that immediately started happening, I read so many articles this past week, that the reason everything happened in Atlanta is because Christians believe that sex outside marriage is wrong. That's why this happened. That, that is as upside down as it can possibly be. But sin makes that seem reasonable. It's being pressed on us in every way. Now, with that, again, and I joke sometimes about this, if I stop here, I have not done my job. Because, friends, I want you to take heart because the gospel is greater than your sin. And the gospel is right here in the, in the second darkest day in the history of the cosmos. God pronounces and pictures the gospel for us. Did you hear in Genesis 3.15 when God traces the chain down and says, Adam, please confess and repent. And Adam says, oh no, it's the woman and it's you. And he says, Eve, please confess and repent. Oh no, it's the serpent. Do you notice that God's word is a word of judgment on Satan, a word of judgment on sin, and then a pronouncement of the gospel? I want you to know that from the woman, the fallen woman and the fallen man, a seed is going to come. He is going to do battle, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. The gospel is true, and it's right there when we are standing there in our guilt and our shame hiding from God, refusing to respond, God pronounces the gospel the very first time in all of Scripture, right at that moment. But not only does he do that, we get the first picture or the first type of the gospel because how does God deal with their nakedness? It's, it's not fig leaves. He takes an animal and an animal is slain to cover Adam and Eve and their nakedness and their sin and their shame. And it's the first picture that when the seed comes, he is going to die and he's going to do it so that we might be covered with righteousness. All of that is right there in Genesis chapter 3. In a dark, horrific chapter, the light of the gospel breaks through. Do we understand this? Friends, if we do, see, when, when we're like Adam and we're confronted with our sin in the presence of a holy God, we are tempted to say somebody else threw the hose in front of the lawnmower. And y'all laughed, but you've said just as crazy stuff to God. And I know because I've said it. And again, if you've studied theology and seminary like I have, I can give Bible verses and argue with God about it. And at the end of it all, that's showing the gospel's not penetrated where it needs to. 
Because when I understand the gospel, I know when the holy God approaches, I don't need fig leaves. I don't need to hide in the bushes. I don't need to blame it on someone else. I can come clean and say, I plead the blood of Christ. I plead the the promises of the gospel. Because, friends, the holy God who comes to you and I is also the God of love. And he offers forgiveness. He offers covering. He offers shalom and freedom through Christ. Even though we have continued, we are like Gomer, the the prostitute wife to Hosea, who keeps going off, who keeps running away, and God keeps coming back and saying, I'm taking you back in. You are still mine. You are mine. I am in covenant with you, and yes, you keep blowing it. You keep falling short. I keep bringing you back because I am a gracious. I am a kind. I am a forgiving God. So if you are here this morning, more than anything, what I want you to understand is you hear all of this about sin. Have you ever embraced the gospel? See, when we see Rousseau does not understand the gospel. Because when you understand the gospel, you quit trying to put it off on society. You quit trying to blame everybody else. You can come clean. Have you understood and embraced the gospel? If you never have, I urge you today, throw yourself upon Jesus Christ. He is more than sufficient. His mercy is more than all of your sin. Secondly, if you're a believer, I ask you, because one of the things is we can get to where over time we forget the wonder of the gospel. We forget just how gracious our God is. And I can start thinking that I'm doing it by performance and I've been guilty this week and and we struggle. And when we come to the table in a few minutes, we think, "I, I was disobedient this week. I don't know if I should come to the table. You should run to the table because you never justify yourself at the table. You never are worthy of this table, nor am I. Much less that I get to actually stand here and break the bread. Dear God, if that was up to my righteousness, I would never approach that table. As a believer, are you washing yourself in the gospel every day? Sin is deep and it is deadly. Sin says, I will take and I will give and we will eat and it'll be death. But Jesus Christ comes and says, I will take and I will break and I will give and it will be life. That's the gospel for you and for me. So we're going to come to the table now. And at this table, it reminds us each and every time we come, the depth of our sin and the depth of God's forgiveness. And it shows us also the depth of our sin and the path to freedom. Because, friends, freedom's not found in hiding my sin. Freedom is found by openly confessing my sin. And so we're going to do this this morning. And what we're going to begin with, I want to encourage you, let's stand together. We're going to have a corporate confession together. We're going to use the words of Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is a little less well-known than the companion psalm, which is Psalm 51. These are David's two psalms after his sin with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, he's finally come clean. 
And Psalm 32 is David reflecting on what God had done and the blessedness of forgiveness. And I began this today with St. Augustine. These were the last words St. Augustine was reading because he kept Psalm 32 on his wall to remind him of the gospel. The great saint knew his only hope was the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that is offered in the gospel. So we're going to put up on the screen here and we're going to confess our sins and we're going to proclaim God's forgiveness together. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Friends, I invite you this morning to come, you who are blessed by your heavenly Father, and eat at the table prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Let's go ahead and be seated, and you can go ahead and open up to get ready for the bread. And I encourage you, as we just read that, did you notice that the Lord is our hiding place? This morning, come out of the bushes and come to God. And rather than hiding, let him be your refuge. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, our father Adam was blessed as your image bearer and ruler over the works of your hands. But he rebelled and fell into sin, and then he refused to confess his sin to you. Like Adam, we have rebelled and sinned, and we deserve punishment and banishment from your presence forever. But unlike Adam, today we freely confess our sin and our need 
for your forgiveness. We take this bread as a confession that Jesus was broken for our sin and that we are forgiven through him alone. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, like Adam, our father, we all rebelled, refusing to accept the limits that were lovingly set by our father. But you, the second Adam, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, the second Adam. You humbled yourself, and you became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, your righteous blood was spilled to save us. And we receive this cup, and with it we confess that you bore the righteous wrath of the Father that we might receive every covenant blessing. And so we lift this cup and say, thanks be to God for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, take and drink. Let's stand together. And as I cry out for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, I encourage you to join with me in asking the Spirit to work in us. Holy Spirit, today we have been reminded of the depth and the breadth of our sin of its enslaving and corrupting power. We have also been reminded and rejoiced in the great mercy and covenant promises of our God. So now we cry out for you to deliver us from sin's corrupting power. Spirit of the living God, rise up within us. Renew our minds by the Word of God. Reform our wills so that they line up and desire that which is in line with the character of God. O Holy Spirit, empower us this week to reject sin, to embrace the commands and limits lovingly given to us by our Father so that we might flourish and be truly free. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people say, Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Friends, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.